Welcome to the Itching Podcast. I'm David Calfee, Editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's December 2022, and here in North America, in Europe, and elsewhere, we find ourselves in the middle of what some are referring to as a triple-demic of RSV, influenza, and COVID-19. Hospitals and emergency departments are crowded, staffing in our facilities is once again being challenged, and the risk and frequency of intrafacility transmission of these pathogens is rising. For two of these three diseases, influenza and COVID-19, we have vaccines that may prevent disease or at least reduce the severity of illness. The surge in respiratory viruses that we're currently experiencing is a vivid reminder of the importance of vaccination of the general public and of healthcare personnel. This month's issue of ITCHI includes several papers related in one way or another to the topic of vaccination of healthcare personnel against SARS-CoV-2 or influenza. I've asked the authors of a few of these papers, as well as authors of two papers published in last month's issue, to join me today to talk about this important and timely topic. Joining me today are Dr. Charles Nicka Evans, Professor of Preventive Medicine in the Division of Epidemiology and the Center for Health Services and Outcomes Research at Northwestern University in Chicago, and research career scientist at the Center of Innovation for Complex Chronic Care at the Heinz VA Hospital. Dr. Mohamed Fakih, Chief Quality Officer for the Ascension Health System. Dr. Rika Murthy, Professor of Clinical Medicine at Cedars-Sinai and UCLA in Los Angeles, California, and the Chair of Shea's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. And Dr. Kosti Sifri, Professor of Medicine and the Director of Hospital Epidemiology at UVA Health in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks for talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So the underlying premise of the work that each of you has done is that vaccination of healthcare personnel against respiratory viruses, specifically SARS-CoV-2 and or influenza, is important. So let's talk about that for a minute. Why is vaccination of healthcare personnel against these pathogens something that we should focus on? In other words, what are the benefits of vaccinating healthcare personnel against these pathogens? Well, I think this is Charles Nick Evans uh, speaking, and vaccinating healthcare personnel has been a longstanding strategy to prevent certain infections, such as influenza, as well as COVID-19 in patients. So vaccination is not only for healthcare personnel's own protection, but also to protect patients who could be vulnerable to infection. I would add something we don't think as much about this, Mohammed, and we've seen it much more with the COVID pandemic, is uh, reducing absenteeism and reducing further stress for an already very stretched thin healthcare system and exhausted workforce. That's also, in my mind, it's also a huge safety and quality issue when you have a lot of absenteeism and then, then you cannot take care of these patients. But I guess I would say is just zooming out a little bit and thinking about history. I think we can all say that vaccination is really considered an an elimination strategy. And think about the terminology we use hierarchy of controls when it comes to determining actions that that best control exposures. And ultimately, vaccines have been shown to be proven and effective. And applying a strategy that is going to be fundamentally impact not only the the health of the healthcare workers and patients, but really the community, which all drives our exposures and ongoing transmission. Thanks, Rika. And the only thing that I was going to add, which was similar to Rika, is also in that hierarchy to 
you know, that it's important for us to thoughtfully consider other mitigation strategies, things like patient identification, rapid testing, isolation, the appropriate use of masks, both for source control for patients and for providers as protection, coughing etiquette, hand hygiene, and certainly with the flu. And I think we could also think about this with COVID as well, but the appropriate use of, of, of antivirals for treatment and perhaps prophylaxis. So, so it's an important tool in the armamentarium that, that we need to use to control respiratory viruses in the healthcare setting. Great. Well, I think you've certainly described a lot of good reasons for us to aim for high rates of vaccination against these two pathogens among our healthcare personnel. So I think the next obvious question then is, is how are we doing with that? And I think recent data from the CDC provides some useful information about this. An internet survey conducted among healthcare personnel in March and April of, of this current year to assess vaccine coverage during the 2021 influenza season found that the overall rate of influenza vaccination was 79.9% among those participating healthcare personnel, which was similar to an 80% vaccination rate reported to the CDC's uh, National Healthcare Safety Network. But notably, rates varied quite a bit by state, ranging from 60% to 95%. And for COVID-19 vaccination, 87.3% had received the primary series, but 67% of those who had completed the primary series had received a subsequent booster dose. So it seems that we still have an opportunity to improve vaccination rates among our healthcare personnel. And I think this is a good segue into the next topic that I wanna specifically explore with you today, which is something that some of you have investigated in your research. And that's what are some of the factors that we know that influence the uptake of these vaccines among healthcare personnel? And perhaps conversely, what are some of the factors associated with vaccine hesitancy or declination? This is Kosti. I'll, I'll go ahead and start. You know, so when we thought about this, uh, we'll talk about it perhaps a little bit more when we talk about um, our study. You know, there's different frameworks for talking about hesitancy, understanding that hesitancy, you know, exists along the spectrum. And I think a very useful one that a lot of people cite is the WHO's SAGE Working Group that talks about the three C's of vaccine hesitancy confidence, convenience, and complacency, sort of thinking about those factors um, that sort of impact why a person may or may not be, you know, accepting of, of getting a vaccine. And again, sort of thinking about that along that, you know, spectrum of hesitancy. Um, you know, one alternative um, approach or, or, or sort of matrix in thinking about this was published in, in um, the journal Vaccine in 2016, by a lead author by the name of Thompson, um, who is at Sanofi. And, you know, they structured it into what they call the five A's. Um, and the five A's are access, affordability, awareness, acceptance, and then activation. And um, I think access, you know, makes perfect sense. Is the vaccine available? Is it available at the work site? Um, or if you're in a school at school or at a, at a convenience store? You know, all those are very important. Affordability is a clearly also very important. Um, a free vaccine is the best vaccine. I think what we would anticipate that we should all offer all of our team members. Awareness um, gets into um, sort of that understanding of, of, of vaccine um, safety and efficacy. What is, and effectiveness, is the vaccine effective in what it, it um, is, is helping prevent? Is it safe? Um, and hopefully that is, you know, strongly evidence-based and, and scientifically sound. And, and we also need to be aware in awareness that there's also 
the opportunity for misinformation in this in this domain and, and understanding that that's where some people come to vaccine considerations with. Acceptance is sort of a next level beyond that. So you can give people the information scientifically sound about efficacy and safety, but it's still different people require sort of different levels of knowledge and time sort of thinking about it, you know, and I think we saw this a little bit with the COVID vaccine versus, you know, the influenza vaccine that's been around for, for decades. It was uh, rapidly developed. I think we can all, um, you know, feel comfortable scientifically sound, but because it was new, people came to it with different levels of comfort, um, especially with mRNA vaccines, which was new technology. And so there's sort of a level of um, understanding and comfort that that's required. And I think also putting the benefit of the vaccine into context for uh, to, for a given individual. So for some people, they really need to you know, be comfortable saying a particular um, respiratory virus is a risk for me or maybe a risk for others if I were to get it, uh, maybe in my household. And for that, it is worth or not worth the, the risk-benefit ratio of, of um, that they, they would garner from, from that uh, awareness discussion. And then the final A in this is activation. And activation, um, the authors um, considered to be a nudge that for people that are along a spectrum of hesitancy, that sometimes they just require a little bit more activation, a little bit more of, of saying you need to, you know, that these are the things that we can do to, to have you get to the finish line of getting a vaccine. And it can be a very simple thing, such as a sign in an elevator or a screensaver or a colleague talking to you, or maybe it's a more significant nudge, like you have to sign a declination or or that there's a, a vaccine mandate. So that's a framework that we thought was very important, sort of thinking about sort of this, um, you know, the, the, the idea of how people come to vaccination. That was really well said. And so, Kosti, I think that the, so to add to what you said, I'm thinking about the, you know, the implementation guide and toolkit that, that the, we thought about as a companion paper to the SHEA guidance on um, mandatory or at least a condition of vaccination as a condition of employment. Uh, one of the some of the key things that that, that surfaced that from a healthcare worker for healthcare personnel perspective, I think is um, in addition to the elements you identified as potential factors and barriers, is around I think the culture of the organization, the leadership culture and the leadership perspective in uh, really leading the organization and being transparent. And then the other important factor that I would just like to surface and amplify um, to what you said is also thinking about the socioeconomic and cultural disparities and uh, the, the inequ- that sort of have been historically and certainly surfaced during COVID, the COVID pandemic, um, examples of how we've seen health disparities in our, in our population. Certainly our healthcare workforce is representative of those as well. So I think those are some important elements that um, I think at least in thinking about Factors and barriers are important in evaluating and addressing in each of these types of perspectives. And uh, certainly in the implementation toolkit that we can reference and it's available, it is also some specific guidance for leadership kind of uh, to, to kind of walk through about how to how to approach the, the uh, workforce as well as some including some scripts and ideas about how to um, how to implement a vaccination, whether it is or not um, considered a condition of employment, as David alluded to earlier. 
You know, I, this Muhammad, I want to underscore what uh, Kosti and uh, Rika just shared. Um, I, I think the perception of vaccine safety and effectiveness by healthcare workers has been a, a key element with with those that, that were hesitant for adoption or taking the vaccine. And uh, quite often it reflected the environment where they live. So it's not just, you know, so it's the organization, but also the environment where the community is. Uh, and so that's that's a big element to overcome. So what is the norm or the expectation within that community? The other thing is the perception of severity of disease. And what we've seen is that when when the disease is seen or, or perceived as very big threat, then that, that adoption was a little bit better for the healthcare workers. So these are two things I think that have affected uh, the adoption of vaccination within the healthcare worker community. Great, so Charles Nika and Mohammed, I know you've both studied COVID-19 vaccine uptake among healthcare personnel within your own institutions and published your findings in this month's issue of ITCHE. So Charles Nika, let's start with your study. What did you and your colleagues do and, and what did you learn? Yeah, so this analysis was part of a larger prospective closed cohort study that we conducted. It was um, an amazing effort to recruit uh, over 6,500 healthcare personnel um, in May of 2020, um, where we were specifically trying to understand and assess the risk of SARS-CoV-2 in these healthcare workers early in the pandemic. And so we were conducting monthly surveys on self-report exposures, um, self-report testing, linking electronic medical record data with uh, testing, as well as collecting blood samples to assess the seropositivity with SARS-CoV-2. And so with the development and planning to authorize the first COVID-19 vaccines at the time, we thought this was a really important opportunity to evaluate intentions, as well as uptake of COVID-19 vaccines. So we decided to add a question about intentions to get the COVID-19 vaccine to our survey. Now, the survey was actually fielded right before the FDA authorized uh, emergency use of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines in December of 2020. And then that data collection spanned through that first week of January of 2021. So we then conducted another survey approximately four to six months later after vaccinations began in our healthcare system to really assess whether intentions changed and to evaluate uptake of those COVID-19 vaccines. And so overall, what we found was that during that initial survey that occurred um, in December and January, 23% of healthcare workers had already received the COVID-19 vaccine. So again, remember, we conducted this while the right before, as well as immediately after the FDA authorized vaccination. So we were getting information on, on healthcare personnel's uh, current vaccination status as this was being rolled out. 54% indicated that they intended to receive the vaccine. So overall, in our sample of healthcare personnel, 77% indicated that they intended to get or had already received the COVID-19 vaccine. We had 17% that were unsure about getting it and then 6% who said that they would not get it. And we found some significant differences in characteristics of healthcare personnel in terms of their intentions to get or, or having already received the vaccine. Physicians, men, and healthcare workers that, had, that identified as Asian had the highest vaccine intentions whereas those compared to nurses, women, and healthcare personnel who identified as non-Hispanic Black, 
An example of this is that 92% of physicians intended to receive or had already received the COVID-19 vaccine as compared to 71% of nurses. We also found some age differences. We found that those who were exposed to patient procedures such as hemodialysis or nebulizer therapy, or who even had a negative serology test had higher intentions to get vaccinated as well. And so one of the things we did find because we uh, conducted the survey at the time before and after the emergency use authorization for the COVID-19 vaccines were issued, we found that those who completed our survey before the emergency use authorizations were issued had a lower vaccine intention rate than those who completed the survey after the emergency use authorization. So I think this sort of goes back to the conversation about even having potentially a little bit more evidence and scientific information that at least on an emergency use level, it has been authorized for use and may have increased people's confidence. We did not assess whether the reasons behind why the healthcare personnel were getting vaccinated. Another point is that finally, at the about six, four to six months later, we surveyed these same healthcare personnel and we found that 95% had received the COVID 19 vaccine. And even of that 17% who were initially unsure about getting the vaccine, almost all of them were vaccinated. So 90% of those were vaccinated. And then 60% of those who were originally no also got vaccinated. So that was a very small portion, 5% of our sample, but 60% of them eventually got it at the time of that survey. And so overall, we found that you know, one of the, I think the important thing here is that the, the people with the highest risk for COVID-19 were also the ones with the lowest intentions to get vaccinated. So in this example, the nurses had the lowest rate of intention to get vaccinated, but have been shown in our cohort as well as in others that they were at the highest risk for SARS-CoV-2 infection in the healthcare setting. So we did find that overall healthcare workers did change their minds with most getting vaccinated without a mandate at the time of this survey. So to be clear, 95% of those we surveyed eventually received a COVID-19 vaccine. Oh, fantastic, thanks, uh, and great study. Uh, Mohammed, you and your colleagues conducted a study that assessed COVID-19 vaccine acceptance rates among the healthcare personnel uh, within your healthcare system during that first six month period or so after these vaccines became available. And I think what you found is, is really complementary to what Charles Nika's team has described. So can you tell us about your work? Oh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, so our system is about 140 hospitals in addition to 2,600 sites of care. And we're in about 12 states uh, and it's mainly community uh, hospitals, the hospitals that we have. And as uh, as David has talked about, it was early in the vaccination uh, uh, you know, time period. So December through June 2021. We had included all associates, uh, and about half of the associates are clinical. The other half is non-clinical. When you look at the clinical associates, uh, out of a system of 170,000 associates, 34% were nurses, about 9% were nursing support, and about 6% were physicians. And when we evaluated the, uh, we, we did two things. We evaluated the vaccination rate for, and by vaccination rate at that time, it, it was taking two shots, you know, two, two doses of the mRNA vaccine or one dose of, of vaccine if it's, if it's uh, so it's, it's the primary series at that point. The associate vaccination rate for healthcare personnel was only slightly higher than the respective community members. So we looked at the region where they live, 
and how they, their vaccination rate was. Uh, it was about 55% versus 51.7%, so slightly higher. When you look at job category, and I think uh, Shraznika talked about this, uh, we found out that the physicians had the highest vaccination rate, and then we had the nurses. But what's very interesting is that nursing support uh, had the, the lowest vaccination rate, and it was lower than the communities where they're coming from. So I would think, Rika, this is this is an area where we would think about disparities and and you know opportunity uh, in the healthcare workforce. Uh, so as I said, the vaccination rate of physicians was higher higher than their community. It d- did not match the community vaccination rate for physicians. For nurses, it was a little bit higher than community, uh, but not as much as physicians. And and the nursing support was much um, much lower. So I, I think that's a key element for new interventions that we're going to do to improve the vaccination rate in the future for, for those that are highest risk also. And I think it's also interesting, I think you reported um, in, in the discussion part of your paper that uh, while initial vaccine acceptance rates were in the 50-some percent range, about when you started writing your paper, a mandate had been implemented and your vaccination rates had increased up to, I think it was around 84%, about a month before the deadline for that program. So uh, you'd also seen um, much higher rates um, towards, towards the end of that period. Uh, and I think I'll point out that there was another paper also published in this issue of Itchy by uh, Mandy Swan and colleagues uh, from a large health system in Virginia. And they found, again, similar uh, themes and findings in terms of uh, hesitancy uh, among healthcare personnel. And so given that we're seeing very similar results across these three different healthcare systems, it seems that uh, this is a pretty broadly relevant issue for all of us to think about. Uh, and I think that begs the question, you know, how can we improve healthcare uh, personal acceptance of these vaccines? And, and I think uh, from your study, Mohammed, and others, that government or facility mandates might do that. And in fact, the CDC survey that I mentioned before that was conducted in the spring of this year found that among healthcare personnel whose employer had vaccine requirements, Vaccination rates were 95 to 97% for influenza, 90 to 95% for the COVID primary series, and about 76 to 88% for the COVID booster. Um, But notably, among those whose employer neither required nor even recommended vaccination, flu vaccination rates were only about 48%. So these mandates and, and requirements do seem to work. But I want to talk a little bit more about facility requirements for healthcare worker vaccination. I think we've probably all experienced in our roles in infection prevention or antimicrobial stewardship that simply creating a policy does not on its own always result in optimization of that desired behavior of interest. And so similar, similarly, saying that vaccination is required doesn't automatically result in optimized or maximized vaccination rates. For example, there are legitimate exemptions to vaccination requirements And this need to allow exemptions could be taken advantage of, perhaps, uh, by those who simply don't want to receive a vaccine or prefer not to receive a vaccine. And and Kosti, I know you and your colleagues looked at uh, influenza vaccination exemption request process uh, and its outcomes over several years at your hospital, uh, during which time a number of changes were made to that process. So can you walk us through that and what you found? Yeah, thanks, Dave. And it's a bit of a discussion. I'll try to you know make sure I'm not uh, make this too belabored. But um, I think it's probably worthwhile going back. And this is sort of apropos of some of the earlier discussions 
Um, at our institution, um, our influenza vaccine rate into the 2000s, uh, the first decade of the 2000s, was around 85 to 88%, depending on the year. So, um, and that's uh, that process was not a, uh, the vaccine was not a condition of employment. It was um, strongly encouraged and there was a required declination with information. So if you declined getting a vaccine, we were, you know, said you're not getting vaccinated, do so at your own risk. And these are the benefits. And I think that was a reasonable, successful approach, but certainly not, I think, the to the level that you were describing earlier, 95, 90, you know, 8% or something like that. So um, following the pandemic 2009-10 year, we instituted a mandated influenza vaccine that was a condition of employment. And it was done under my authority as the hospital epidemiologist with leadership support. So it wasn't like rewritten into our policy, but rather that we had a, a policy that I was allowed to, to make certain mandates like this. It was, was not necessarily codified um, word for word in, in our policy. And, you know, we, we developed a structure saying that, you know, that you, you require you were required to get a flu vaccine as part of your condition of employment. The way we implemented it was not particularly rigorous. We said you know, that it was required, but um, a person could request an exemption. It could be a medical exemption or a religious exemption. And simply they could um, submit uh, an exemption request um, saying why they had a medical exemption. And we really um, only required at least initially um, a, a letter of support from a physician if it did not meet sort of the standard criteria per CDC, such as severe allergy, anaphylaxis, or history of Guillain-Barre syndrome within six weeks after vaccination or religious exemption. You know, the way to think about this, they're commonly referred to as checkbox exemptions. There's no critical review of them, but they're just submitted and they're accepted. And that was that was our process. Sort of halfway during this period of time of the sort of the pre-intervention period, which was essentially from 2010 to 2019, we started to take a look, um, require a medical exemption request from a physician for, for, anaf for the entire spectrum, anaphylaxis, um, severe allergy, or, or Guillain-Barre syndrome. But again, we did not critically review those requests. And with that process, we've increased our vaccination rate from, like I said, around 86% or so on average in the, in the late 2000s to about 80, 96% with this um, exemption process. During this period of time, we then, as a health system, revisited all of vaccine requirement issues. And, and the reasons for that are complex, but they included um, an awareness in the setting of a measles outbreak that we had not enough information regarding measles or MMR vaccination or measles immunity amongst our, our team members. So with that process, we sort of took a second look or a new look at our entire vaccine requirement programs and made the decision to say that we would um, you know, require a critical appraisal of vaccine exemption requests, be they medical or, or religious. The medical ones were taken care of by our occupational health services. And I'll, I'll call out um, specifically Josh Eby, who's a lead author and, and corresponding author on the paper who can't join us today because he's on vacation, but was really the impetus for this study. And then the religious exemptions, I think like a, a lot of other institutions were dealt with by you know, an HR process that included things like legal and ethics and, and other groups and was really sort of um, separated from the medical exemption process. So when we instituted that program, our and that was occurred in 2000, the um, 2019 and 20 flu season, we saw that our acceptance rates of influenza vaccination, our coverage went from 
around 96% to 98.5%. Specifically, our exemption rate went from 3.8% on average for the nine years before the study to 1.2% after the study. And I think that's maybe interesting in of itself. I'm not particularly compelled by it. Um, I think like 96 versus 98% vaccine coverage is kind of quibbling and, and is not that specifically, perhaps not that interesting. And I think it's back um, maybe ter- during the discussion, we can touch on it, the five A's of, of vaccine hesitancy. What we did find interesting, however, was this observation that some people during this pre-intervention period, the, the nine years when we had just sort of a checkbox ex- exemption process, would change their answer year to year. We made this like an anecdotal observation. Some people would say, I have a religious exemption one year, and then you know, maybe the next year they didn't have a religious exemption. So people are allowed to do that, right? People change their beliefs all the time in terms of, of theology or their um, relationship with religion. But we were kind of surprised by that. And we're wondering a little bit more about that. And when we took a look at that population of people that were exempted, we were rather surprised to learn that of the 1,200 or so people where we had three or more years of exemption requests on record, we found that about two-thirds of them, actually even a little bit more than that, I think around 70% of them, changed their mind and that consistent exemptors were the minority. Um, we found this very surprising. We did not set out to, to study this, but it was an observation. And so, and, and I forgot to lay out that this is just a, is an observational study. And we sort of wanted to understand that a little bit more. So we found that that sort of, we sometimes parochially call these flip-floppers, these people who change their reasons for exemption, that they were as likely to be people who had requested medical exemptions and then sort of came back and said, you know, uh, I'll get the vaccine or compared to religious exemptors. So that was not a differentiator. We did make the observation that we didn't really tease apart that perhaps during some flu seasons that were more robust, that were more severe, that the people that went from exempted to acceptance were more like that that was more common during those years compared to years that were lighter flu years. And so there may be sort of that that issue of how bad is the flu season and what does flu mean for me that was part of a calculation for certain people. And then we took a look um, finally at, you know, what happened when we instituted this um, you know, more rigorous vaccine exemption process. And what we found is, as I said, those numbers increased. And the people that were inconsistent exemptors, about 90% of them then accepted getting the flu vaccine when we put a rigorous process in terms of this evaluation. Whereas about half, about 56% um, of those um, individuals who had been a consistent exemptor also ended up getting exempted from the vaccine afterwards. So, you know, I think it speaks to the fact, I think, in our minds about, about vaccine hesitancy, that perhaps a surrogate of sort of, you know, modest hesitancy may be these people that go back and forth and that, that there maybe is an incremental benefit to putting in a more rigorous exemption standard whether that makes a tangible difference in terms of protection for your provider team member population i think is a is a discussion point but you know it was a, an, an interesting observation that we made yeah no absolutely and i think that really kind of complements the findings that tom talbot and his colleagues from vanderbilt had published in itchy last year where they similarly formalized their exemption review process and did a few other things like incorporating vaccination rates into their quality goals uh, and providing feedback on vaccination uh, data uh, and rates to to supervisors and increasing accountability. And they saw probably um, a 
more noticeable improvement where their rates of influenza vaccine increased from 80% to greater than 97%. And applied across other types of vaccinations, they are they saw smaller but increases in their already high rates of vaccination against mumps and measles and hepatitis B and other things. So um, really looking thoughtfully at our process is probably is a, is a good idea for all of us. And it is important to note, I believe, that these vaccine requirements, like the ones you've been discussing, are not universally present. In that CDC survey that I mentioned before, uh, influenza vaccine and the COVID-19 initial vaccine series were required by the employers of just 44% and 60% of the participants. And the COVID vaccine booster was required for only about 23% of, of employers. So in the absence of a mandate, uh, then, are there ways to improve vaccination rates? And I think this is probably an important question, even in the setting of a mandate, as it seems to me, at least, that if we can win the hearts and minds of our healthcare personnel with regards to the safety and benefits of vaccination, and our personnel accept these vaccines because they want to, uh, rather than because they have to, we might have healthier and happier healthcare personnel, and perhaps they'd be more likely to contribute to our efforts to improve vaccination rates among our patients and the general community. And Rick, I know you were part of a Shea group uh, that developed a toolkit that you referred to earlier for facilities implementing a policy of COVID-19 vaccination as a condition of employment. But I think importantly, you noted in a letter to the editor that we published last month that many of the components of that toolkit could be helpful in promoting vaccination, even in the absence of a mandate or requirement. So can you talk to us a little bit about what's in the toolkit and, and how it might be helpful as we try to improve our vaccination rates, either with or without a mandate? Yes, certainly. I think the intention, sort of, you know, including in that letter to the editor, was essentially to highlight the fact that, you know, as we've been talking about the data and the science around why vaccines make a difference and why it's important, it really comes down to, I think, what we recognize is the barriers, and not only in terms of uptake and acceptance, but it's also the how. I mean, how do you do this work? And we've heard great examples in individual institutions, um, and there's lots of guidance out there. Um, but when it comes down to individual organizations trying to, as you said, win the hearts and minds by communicating, setting leadership examples, developing the organization culture, but then there's the operational uh, operationalizing of how do you actually do this work? And, and we've heard great examples of things like processes such as exemption requests and such. So I think the intent of the toolkit was to build on the, the framework that through Shea of the Shea CDC Outbreak Response and Training Program example, uh, which provide guidance on uh, mobilizing an effective and successful outbreak response and applying that to the vaccination, vaccination approach and how to implement uh, COVID-19 vaccination and other vaccines potentially. And I think importantly, the, the intention was not to make it uh, seem like it was only for organizations that you know, wanted to do a mandate. Certainly the same tools and, and uh, templates could be used for organizations that hadn't decided to, but were considering it or just wanted to move forward on, on using some of the toolkits. And so the, these toolkits that are available through that site and through the learning CE, uh, through Shape Learning CE, were really intended to um, be a source for readily available information and templates and resources to help not only strategic decision making, um, but also to establish processes um, to, to, to 
put in place a policy. And so I think one of the key things we were trying to emphasize is organization healthcare facilities already are, have structures in place for performance improvement or other sort of wide organizational policy implementation. So using the internal structures in, is an important message. And what we've tried to do is assemble a sampling of templates and policies that could be easily adaptable and fillable. And so this, you know, importantly, this is not necessarily kind of a very formal set of information. This is really intended to be a practical how-to and that this uh, the living resource that um, can be updated as indicated. So I think the, the intention was to kind of have not only a, a and I can walk through some of the frameworks, it was really around how to make the decision around uh, whether it's a mandate or not. And, and, and that includes helping guide a little bit about the explanation to leadership and how to identify stakeholders uh, and uh, incorporating some of the risk management and legal considerations. And we've talked about some of that already. Working in terms of the decision points and communication, who and how is, uh, is going to be doing the communicating. Managing data, we've talked about how internal data tracking and how do you build an accountability and how some of those models can be uh, uh, implemented. And importantly, there was some, one of the other elements we tried to do was really include some visual, like uh, visual uh, demonstrations of how to manage the process and outcome measures. So I think that the intention was to have a set of tools that could be readily accessible, that could be adaptable for organizations, though, both that are really moved along in that process. And as you said, maybe in communities where there's more acceptance. But in those there's not, maybe it's a spectrum. We've heard Kasi describe an evolution of over a decade or more. And we all have examples of how we've implemented these differently. So I think that spectrum of mandate to kind of starting the, the communication and engagement of staff and incorporating principles of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in those communications and some of those templates was also, it was also some of the uh, elements that were reflected. And I think they, on the website, we can certainly point to where those resources can. Chosnik, I know you addressed this to some extent in the discussion of your paper as well, thinking about where we need to go to try to address some of those groups that you found had lower rates of, of vaccine intention, at least. Um, anything you want to add to what uh, Reka has, has said already? Yeah, I think the summary Rika gave was was excellent on thinking through how we can improve vaccination rates. And specifically, one other uh, point I want to make is about avoiding missed opportunities, encouraging uh, vaccination for both influenza and COVID-19 at the same visit. That could be a way to, to boost not only for healthcare personnel, but for also patients as well. And of course, making vaccination convenient for healthcare personnel at, at locations where they're at and times that they're available. But also just thinking about education and messaging and how we're doing that and how we're making that inclusive to the communities and groups that we are focused on. So we recently had a letter to the editor accepted in, in infection control and hospital epi focused on our same cohort assessing intentions to get COVID-19 boosters and uptake. And we found that the most frequent reason that a healthcare personnel would get a booster vaccine included if there was data showing additional protection. 
And while the most frequent reason for those who didn't want to get a booster vaccine was that they needed more data on the vaccine. So I think this really just highlights that we need to provide effective communication of scientific evidence in order to improve uptake of a vaccine in of vaccines in healthcare personnel who are then in turn the opinion leaders that our patients will be going to to get that information. So I think that's really important. All right. That was a great discussion. And we end every podcast by asking our participants to give listeners an action item that they can take away from the podcast that they can put into practice in the near term. Maybe it's today or this week, but not next year. So I'll ask each of you to suggest one or two concrete things that we could do now to help achieve higher healthcare personnel influenza or COVID-19 vaccination rates during the current season. So Charles Nika, let's start with you. Sure, I'll just reiterate the opportunity to vaccinate people at that same visit that they're in the clinic or hospital or whatever setting that is to improve uptake. How about you, Mohammed? I thought about two things. The first thing is be a champion for vaccination. So, you know, drive it. Uh, I think we need a lot of folks that will move vaccination and have the passion to push it. And the second thing is address populations that have disparities, uh, disparities in vaccination. Uh, you may have 95% vaccination rate, but the 5% may be completely clustered in one uh, group within your uh, healthcare uh, workforce. Rika. So I think I'm going to double down on Mohammed's comment about addressing disparities and uh, incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think the message I would kind of leave with is, you know, it's those individual touch points that make a difference that we're going to try and move the needle. And I think uh, Mohammed highlighted that that 5% is a really important 5% because when we study it deeply, it's those groups that may be marginalized or maybe um, have have distrust and maybe just not as much faith and understanding. So in the process and the benefit. So I think that individual communication, and that could include peers, patients, the community through all the channels. So messaging, there's resources out there for individual kind of you know, changing those hearts and minds that you started the conversation with, I think is an important element that I would leave with. Last but not least, Kosti. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, uh, thanks. And I think I'm going to double down on what uh, Rika just said. Um, similarly, I'm in a state where we are not allowed to um, require um, COVID vaccinations outside the um, the CMS rule. And that was a change with a, a political leader. Uh, so we're, we're not in a place where we can use what I said, those soft or hard nudges to get people to require vaccines. So um, it's particularly around COVID and the COVID booster. I think it's been important. It's one thing that we really talk about a lot is to make sure that we have open conversations that are conversations that, um, you know, take time. Again, getting back to the discussion about um, acceptance. These are um, sometimes people need to dwell with information for a while in order to come around to vaccination. So if we can find and um, identify those areas, getting to Mohammed's point where uh, maybe there's increased um, numbers of people who don't uh, haven't accepted um, a vaccine, try to find those people that um, are effective communicators with those teams or with those individuals and to make sure that those are an ongoing conversation. That's where we've um, found that we have most success. Great. Well, thank you all for those great suggestions to help us advance our vaccination programs. 
and for your research and leadership related to this important topic. I also want to thank our producer and the managing editor of Itchy, Lindsay McMurray. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. 